again, glad y'all are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Let me tell you how the last few chapters in 2 Samuel lay out. So the last four chapters are a summary of David's leadership. So they're not really a lot of chronological markers. It doesn't matter when they happen. The point is to say here's some major elements of who David was as a leader. There's six scenes. And those scenes are divided up into three pairs, and we're going to look at each pair separately over the next three or four weeks. So today we're going to look at the first pair, which is kind of the outer layer, the very first scene, and then the sixth scene, which speak about David as as the king, David as the leader. And then we'll look at the middle two pairs next week, David as a warrior, and then in a couple of weeks we'll look at the core, which is David as a man after God's own heart. And so that that's the key characteristic of who he is. So just to give you some handholds as we go through this material, don't know exactly when it happened in David's reign, and that's not necessarily important. So we'll start in chapter 21, verse 1. And both of these stories are a little disturbing, so you can uh, be ready for that. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It's because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonements that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. So what do you want me to do for you, David asked. They answered, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we've been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So David said, I will give them to you. David spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth. So there's two guys named Mephibosheth, if you can imagine that. So there's two of them. So the second one, the two sons of Ai, the daughter of Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she'd borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahoelite. I don't know how to say that. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. So let me give you some background. So all the way back in Joshua, Joshua leads the Israelites across the Jordan River, and God said, here's your land, and you've got to wipe out all the people, kill all of them, because if you let them live, they're going to lead you astray. And so Joshua did that. They took Jericho, they took a city called um, Ai, and then these guys, the Gibeonites, they lived in the land, and they realized, we're going to get steamrolled. This is not going to go well for us. And so they um, dress up in really ragged clothes and they get some moldy bread and they go to Joshua and they say, we're from a long way away. Don't kill us. Make a treaty with us. And Joshua says, well, how do I know you're from a long way away? And they say, well, look at us. Our clothes are ragged. They were new when we started on our journey. Our bread's all moldy. It was fresh when we started on our journey. And the Bible says in Joshua 9, Joshua did not inquire of the Lord. He didn't ask God. He just looked at their 
uh, situation. He just looked at their clothes and he looked at their food and he said, okay, so you guys are from a long way away. So he entered into a treaty with them and says, we won't kill you. And then later he finds out that the Gibeonites are neighbors. They actually live in the land. They should have been killed. And he goes to them and says, why did you lie? And they said, why, why do you think we, we didn't want you to kill us? And he says, well, here's the deal. The people in Israel are upset with Joshua and the leaders because they've entered into this treaty. And Joshua says, there's nothing I can do. You can see some of the highlighted portions up there on the screen from the relevant verses. Joshua says, there's nothing we can do. We've entered into a covenant with these people. That's a solemn oath. That's a promise before the Lord that we're not going to kill them. If we do something, then God's wrath, his righteous anger towards sin will be poured out on us. They may have lied to us, but we made this covenant with them, and so we cannot touch them, or God will be upset with us. So he says to the Gibeonites, y'all are basically going to be slaves for, uh, for us. You're going to be woodcutters and water fetchers for us. There's a lot of wood that needed uh, to be brought to the tabernacle for sacrifices. Everything had to be burned, and there was a lot of water to clean up all the blood. And so that's y'all's job. You're going to bring water, and you're going to bring wood, but we can't. Kill you, And that had been the case for hundreds of years. And then we see Saul in his zeal for Israel or Judah. So that's nationalism or patriotism. That is not led by the spiritism. He is not doing any of that for the Lord. And he breaks this covenant and he starts killing the Gibeonites. And this representative from Gibeon says he's decimated us. It's not one or two. He's decimated our people. So David has been ruling for some period of time and there's a bad crop and maybe that's we can write that off. That happens. And then there's a bad crop the next year and you start to wonder. Then the third year in a row, we have a bad crop. And David says to the Lord, what's going on? Why three years in a row? Remember, this is an agricultural society. Everything's hand to mouth. So three years in a row of three years of bad crops, that's a pretty significant situation. And so he goes to the Lord and says, what's happening? And, and God says, it's because of what Saul did. He broke covenant with me and with the Gibeonites by killing them. Remember, these covenants are sworn before the Lord. It's not just a commitment between two people. God's involved. And we saw in Joshua, if we break covenant, then the wrath of God will be poured out on us. And so that's what you see, this famine for three years. And, and so David goes to the Gibeonites and says, how can we make this right? And Saul at this point is long dead, and they say, we, give us seven of his male descendants. Seven is his symbolic number. It's completeness. Saul killed way more than seven Gibeonites. They say, give us seven descendants. And David says, okay, I can do that. And he can't give them Mephibosheth, who's Jonathan's son, because David's made a covenant with Jonathan that said, I'm going to look out for your family. But he finds two other sons of Saul, one of whom is also named Mephibosheth. And then he finds five grandsons of Saul. And he gives them to the Gibeonites and they kill them and leave their bodies out in the open in Saul's hometown. That's where they do all this. In Saul's hometown, they kill these seven descendants of Saul and they leave their bodies out uh, exposed to the elements. Verse 10. So Rizpah took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. So Rizpah was the mother of two of those kids, and she's setting up camp outside. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, Rizpah did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead, 
They'd stolen their bodies from the public square at Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down at Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zel and Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. And then after all of that, God answered prayer on behalf of Israel. So you have this mother. She can't stop David from taking her two boys. He doesn't have a lot to choose from. Most of Saul's family is already dead, so there's not a lot of guys left. And she doesn't have any say-so. He's the king, and he takes them. And then, But she can honor them, for a lack of a better word, in death. And so she sits out there with her sleeping bag, and she beats off the scavengers. Nobody's touching the bodies of my boys, is what she's saying. And David hears about that, and it moves him. And so he gathers the bones of these seven men, and then he gets Saul's bones that have been in a city called Jabesh-Gilead, and the, the bones of Jonathan that was also in the same city. And he gathers all of them together, and he buries them in Saul's uh, home tomb, his dad's tomb. His name was Kish. So you see there David honoring Saul's family, even though Saul's decisions have brought such misery on the land. Three years of famine because of the decisions of Saul. And the decisions of leaders absolutely affect the people who are uh, under their leadership. We know that. We know that in our world. We know that to be true. You read the Marietta paper. We have a $30 million deficit in Cobb County. That's all the paper's been talking about for the past few weeks. Somebody made those decisions, and we're literally going to pay for it. Wherever you stand on that, we're going to be the ones that write the check to cover that, or we're going to be the ones that don't have certain services in order to cover the gap. None of us made those decisions. Our leaders made those decisions. We're going to pay. Same thing is true here. Saul made decisions, and it affected the nation. When a king made righteous decisions, the nation was blessed. When a king made unrighteous decisions, the nation was judged or cursed in some ways. And we see that playing out here. And after that, those guys died, and after they were buried, it rained, and God heard prayer again on behalf of the nation. So when you think about David as a leader, that's the point of this story. We pull out something that we've seen in him time and time again, not perfectly, But time and time again, we see David seek the Lord, and that's what he does here. He seeks the Lord. What's going on? Why is there a famine? We see David as a covenant keeper. He honors his covenant to Jonathan and doesn't turn Mephibosheth over. Those are two things we never see in Saul. We never see Saul seek the Lord. We don't see Saul keep covenant. We saw him break it here, even though it caused great damage to the nation. We see David as someone who honors even his enemies. Saul, someone who had attacked him and someone who had pursued him and someone who tried to kill him. God, or David honors him even in his death. We'll circle back to some broader implications about that story in a second. We'll skip over to verse uh, chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. So again, that ties it back to what we just read. So this is a similar theme. God again is angry at Israel. He was angry in chapter 21 because of what Saul did. And now he's angry, but we're not exactly sure why. So God incited David against Israel, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So David said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many are there. But Joab replied to David, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord, the king, see it. But why does my Lord, the king, want to do such a thing? David's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. 
After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aror, south of the town in the gorge, and then they went through Gad and on to Jezreel, or Jazir, excuse me. They went to Gilead in the region of Tatim Hadshi, and on to Danjain, and around toward Sidon. Then they went towards the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and finally they went to Beersheba and the Negev of Judah. So they went from the north to the south. After they'd gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. So he's got 1.3 million potential troops. So God is angry at Israel. We don't know exactly why. My belief is he's angry because Israel anointed Absalom to be the king. I think this happens at the end of David's reign, after the chapter that we read last week, chapter 20. I think that uh, we, we read that Israel anointed Absalom, and I think God is angry with them because that's not just a rejection of David, that's a rejection of him. God put David on the throne, and so in rejecting David, they're rejecting God, and he's angry. And so he persuades David to take a census. Now, taking a census is not a sin. James 1 says God does not tempt us to evil. If anyone's tempted, he shouldn't blame God. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin, and he's not tempted to sin. Taking a census is not a sin. There are times in the Old Testament where God explicitly said, do this. And yet, in this case, it was sinful, so it's not the action, it's the motivation behind the action. Joab is not exactly the most uh, sensitive and tender man in the world, and he's saying to David, don't do this. We don't see any conscience in Joab in any of the times that we see him, and yet he is saying, don't don't do this. I hope that that the number of troops multiplies times 100, but don't count them. And yet David does so anyway. Two major theories on David's motivation and why it would be sinful. One is pride. David wanted to see how many guys do I have so he could kind of revel in that. I don't think that was the case. I think it was fear. I think David had just come back to Jerusalem. His son had led a coup against him, and Israel had anointed his son king. That's a public rejection of David as king. And then this guy Sheba had tried to lead a rebellion against David as well. He put it down. David did, but Sheba tried. And so I think he's, he's old, and I think he's looking around, and he's going, what are my enemies, what are they seeing? I've never lost a battle, but do they think here in my old age I'm weak? They know my son led a coup against me. They know this guy Sheba tried to lead a rebellion against me. Do they see us as vulnerable? And so I want to make sure I've got a big enough, I've got to see what I've got. There's no standing army in Israel. David has 3,000 permanent troops. The rest of his army is made up of guys, men, who are 20 years and older. So if there was a need, you'd put out the call, and every man 20 years or older would come and fight. It wasn't a standing professional army. And so David wants to know, how many guys do I have? If the Philistines come back, how many guys do I have? And I think that's why he counted. I think it was fear. I don't think he was trusting the Lord to protect their borders. I think he was looking to the size of his army to protect their borders. I don't know. That's all speculation, but that's what I think. And so Joab and his guys go out and count, and it's 1.3 million troops, potentially. That's what comes back. When David heard that number, this is verse 10, he was conscience-stricken after he'd counted those fighting men. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of God had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. 
I'm going to give you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So God is saying to David, pick your punishment. So Gad went to David and said, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Option one. Option two, three years of fleeing for your enemies. Excuse me, three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you. Or option three, three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. You think about what you would do. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but don't let me fall into into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough. Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruana, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I've sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. So David is conscience stricken. Literally, his heart hits him. That's how strongly uh, he reacts. When Joab comes back and says it's 1.3 million, he says, I've done something foolish. That word foolish speaks to a rash decision that's done out of fear versus trusting in the Lord. That's why I think David was motivated by fear and not pride. He says, I've done something foolish. I've made a quick decision that was not rooted in trust of God. It was rooted in my own fears. And so Gad comes to him and says, God says, pick your punishment. You have three options, three years of famine, Three years of losing in battle, or excuse me, three months of losing in battle, or three days of a plague. And David's response is, I trust the Lord in that. He's merciful. My enemies won't be. If it's three months, they're going to get every second of every minute of every hour of every day that's given to them. Who knows with the Lord? He's merciful. I'll take that. So he gets the shorter of the two. I'll take the plague. God sends this angel of death out on some kind of sickness. 70,000 people die from the north to the south of, of Israel. And the angel is, is coming upon Jerusalem to wreak havoc there, and God relents. That's a word we've seen a couple of times in Samuel. It means God changed his mind. He changed his behavior. He, had, he was the one who had decided to destroy, or he was the one who had decided to judge because he was angry, and now he's the one who's decided I'm, I'm done. And he withdraws his hand. Get David sees a vision of this, sees this angel, and he stops right there. This is what a threshing floor is, if you care. It's just an outside area where a farmer would separate the wheat from the chaff from the crops that he just harvested. That actually becomes, um, well, it does, I'll tell you that in a second. So that's what a threshing floor is. And David sees the angel right there, and, and he stops, and he takes full responsibility what's happening. I'm the one that sinned. I'm the one who's done wrong. These people haven't done anything. You see there the heart of David taking full responsibility uh, for what is happening. So on that day, Gad went to David and said, go up and build an altar to the Lord on that threshing floor. What we just saw, you build an altar right there on that spot. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Aruana looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, 
Why has my Lord the king come to his servant? I want to buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an ark to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruana said to David, let my Lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, I give you all this to the king. Aruana also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of Israel and the plague on Israel was stopped. So David sees this angel and he says, this is all my fault. And Gad, the prophet, so this is inspired by God, says, build an altar right here, right here on this ground. And so David goes to Arwana, who owns it, and says, I want to buy this land, this plot of land. And Arwana says, no, I'm give it, I'll give it to you. I'll give you it. I'll give you the animals to sacrifice. I'll give you wood to build an altar and to use as firewood so you can sacrifice these animals. And David says, no, this is my fault. I'm the reason this is happening. There's no way I'm letting you give that stuff to me. I'm putting skin in the game. This is my responsibility. And so he buys this portion of land that actually becomes the ground on which Solomon will build the temple uh, in 1 Kings. That becomes the site for the temple um, in, in 1 in Kings. And so David buys this land and he builds an altar and then he sacrifices these animals and the plague stops. And God hears prayer on behalf of the people Again, and when you step back and you look at that and say, if the point of chapter 24 is to say something to us about David's leadership, what do we see? Something we've seen many times, he's responsive to God, particularly when he's convicted of his sin. And that's something also that's different between David and Saul. When Saul is confronted with his sin, he lies and he blames and he justifies and he rationalizes. When David is confronted with his sin, he repents. He takes full responsibility. We know because we read the very beginning of the chapter. David doesn't know. God was already upset with Israel. God was already angry before any of this happened. God was already looking to judge Israel for sins that they committed. And if, if, if what I'm thinking is correct, and it doesn't necessarily matter, but if it is, David has taken responsibility for judgment. And he's saying the people didn't do anything wrong. And I want to say the people did a lot wrong. They rejected you and they rejected the God who put you on the throne when they anointed your son to be the king. But David doesn't blame. He says, this is all on me. This is my responsibility. He's fully responsive to the Lord. And those are two things that we've seen in throughout David's life. He is not perfect. He has a decade where he seems completely asleep at the wheel. But by and large, when you look at his life, he is a man who seeks God and he is a man who is responsive to God, particularly when he is confronted with his sin. He acknowledges his wrongdoing, he repents, and he moves forward in restored relationship. Again, we've talked about those things repeatedly as we've looked at the life of David over the last, it's probably been eight or nine months at this point. I was reading these two stories, and they're brutal and barbaric in some ways. And we read those and we're going, oh my, I don't see Jesus in those stories. I don't get that. And so for some of us, when we read stuff like this, our tendency is to say, well, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different guys. Something happened. Like that's, this isn't him. I don't see Jesus saying, sure, seven guys, let's lay them out on a hill and kill them. 
I don't see Jesus saying, let's do a plague of 70,000, kill 70,000 people. I want you to hear the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. The God of the Old Testament is Jesus' Father, and he's yours as well, if you're following him. And the character that we see, the God of the Old Testament, is the same. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. If you've seen him, Jesus says, then you've seen your Father who's in heaven. So I want to maybe give you a handhold that hopefully can help you kind of process these two stories in light of what we know about God. So when I think about these stories, this is what I see. I see salvation being played out on an Old Testament level. And by Old Testament level, I mean with the Jews. God had established a covenant with the Jewish people and said, I'm your God and you're going to be my people. That's how this is going to work. And here are the terms of the covenant. You can read about them in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's the law. Here are the rules. You're going to follow the rules and I'm going to be everything to you. If you break the rules, there are going to be consequences. That's what, the, that's what the covenant was, the terms of a relationship that the people agreed to back in Exodus. And so what we see in chapter 21 and chapter 24 is people sin. They break the rules. They break relationship. They rebel against the Lord. Saul breaks, literally breaks the covenant that Joshua had made. An, a solemnly sworn oath before God to the Gibeonites to not kill them. Saul kills them out of some zeal for his nation, nationalism, patriotism, whatever you want to kill, call it. And he starts wiping out these people. That's breaking covenant, not just with the Gibeonites, but with the Lord, because all covenants are made before him. We don't know what the Israelites did in chapter 24 that made God angry. I think they, it was because they anointed Absalom king, but you don't have to agree with that. We don't know. We just know God was angry. And then we know God was angry at why David took the census. A census itself was not a sin. But the motivation behind it was. So we have people sinning. And that sin provokes God's wrath. God's wrath is his righteous anger poured out towards sin. How does God feel about sin? It makes him angry. That's how he feels. And that anger takes multiple expressions. In our two chapters, one expression is famine. And another expression is Plague, Or if you like the phrase God's wrath instead of his anger, that's fine. His wrath takes multiple expressions. Famine and plague in our two chapters. That's not the end of the story. What we see in both chapter 21 and chapter 24 is atonement. Some people break that word up at one minute. Atonement is how uh, parties are reconciled to one another. There's relationship Sin breaks relationship. Atonement makes reconciliation possible. Without atonement, uh, you, can't, you can't move forward relationally any longer. Atonement pays the price for sins that have been committed within a relational context. In the Bible, atonement always requires the death of someone or something all the time. There's always got to be blood shed for atonement, for reconciliation to happen. In chapter 21, it's the death of Saul's seven descendants. Two kids and five grandkids, or two grandkids and five kids. Other way. 
That's what it required in chapter 21. The death of those seven descendants that allowed for that. They were the atoning, we'll call it sacrifice. Not the greatest word, but that's what we'll call it. In chapter 24, it's the animals that David sacrificed. A burnt offering, that was for sin. A fellowship offering, that was for thanks for thanksgiving. Those animals, it was their death that made atonement possible. And then we see in both chapters, relationship is restored and forgiveness is extended. The rains come, so the famine is broken. The plague stops, nobody else dies. In both chapters, the last phrase is, and God heard prayer on behalf of Israel again. They're back in relationship. Think about that idea of hearing prayer. They're in relationship again. God can hear what they're saying. They've been made right with one another. That's what salvation looks like in the Old Testament. You see it is, and it is, in some ways, there's a brutal element to it. Because in order for there to be reconciliation, someone or something has to die. That's what underlies the entire sacrificial system that causes your eyes to glaze over when you're reading the Old Testament. And you're like, they're killing a goat again. They're killing a bull again. When you read that, the reason they're killing all of those animals all of the time is because they're sinning all of the time. And that sin is breaking relationship with God. And the death of those animals on a superficial level, according to Hebrews, is bringing back, is making relationship possible. We live in a new era and we have a choice. This is option one. And I will tell you it's terrible, but you can take it if you want. We all sin. That's just a a list of sins from Galatians 5 and there's tons of them. In the New Testament, here are behaviors that are unacceptable to the Lord. Behaviors that are done from arrogance, that are done from pride, that are done from unbelief, that are done from greed, lust, whatever. Here, here they are. And you can multiply that out. These things are unacceptable. And that sin, my sin, your sin, continues to provoke the wrath of God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Sin made him angry in 2 Samuel. And sin made him angry in Genesis. And sin makes him angry now. It kindles his anger. It provokes him to act. It provokes him to pour out his wrath, his righteous anger on sin. And so we are in a position, apart from Jesus, where uh, according to Revelation, at some point, we're all going to stand before the throne of God. And there's going to be this whole pile of books. There's going to be a book for Kate and a book for Brandon and a book for Tom and a book for Eric. We all have a book. And God's going to open up that book. And he's going to start reading. And that book is going to contain everything you've ever done. And why you did it. Not just what, but why. We saw in 2 Samuel 21, Saul broke covenant. What he did was sinful. In 2 Samuel 24, it wasn't what David did. It was why he did it. It was his motivation that was sinful. And all of that, for all of us, we've all got a book. For some of us, it's a really big book. And God's going to say, all right, let's see how you did. And he's going to start with whatever age he starts with. We'll say 12, just for kicks. That's when he starts. Before that, we'll say he doesn't hold you responsible. But let's say starting at age 12, he starts saying, all right, let's see how you did. January 1st, January 2nd, January 3rd. 
What did you do and why did you do it? And at the end of that book, however long that takes, he's going to say, okay, here's what you get based on what you did. If there's any sin in the book, and there'll probably be a little bit, right? If there's any sin in the book, the wages of sin is death. If you're not trusting Jesus, then what God's going to say is, your sin provokes my wrath, my righteous anger towards your rebellion, towards your pride, towards your gossip, towards your unbelief, towards your lust, towards your greed. Your sin provokes my wrath. And this is how that's paid for. You die. That's what we're, that, that's it for us, apart from Jesus. That's, that's the way things play out for us. We all have a book, and God's going to judge us based on what's written in that book. Thankfully, there's an option B. Thankfully, there's an option B. We still sin. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin still provokes God's wrath. It always does. But God, because he's not just holy... Because God, because he's not, just, he's not only just. Because God, because he's not just interested in obedience. Because he's also loving and he's also gracious and he's also kind. And he's also interested in relationship. Has made reconciliation possible. What he said is, so you've got a book. But I've also got a book. And if, you'll let, and if your name is written in my book, then I'll burn yours. That's what it means to be saved. You've got two choices. The Bible says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that God gave for our sins. His, our sin always provokes wrath. And that wrath is directed either towards the person who sinned or to some representative. And God has made his son the representative, Jesus, and said, I'll direct my wrath for your sins towards him. That's what it means. To be, that's what his death means for us. And, and, and when I look at you, I won't read your book. I'll read his instead. I won't look at all of the places where you sinned, both in behavior and in motivation. I'll look at all the places where he was righteous in both. And rather than punishing you and judging you for all of the places that you blew it, I'm going to reward you for all the places that he didn't. That's the trade. That's what it means to be saved. We're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from his righteous anger being directed at us because of the sins that we have committed. You can read Revelation 20. There's two sets of books. There's the book that's based on my track record, my behavior, and there's a book that's based on Jesus' track record and his behavior. And if your name's not in his book, then God's going to judge you based on yours. And if your name is written in his book, then yours got burned anyway. And you don't have to worry about it. He is the atoning sacrifice. God's wrath that should be directed towards me is directed towards him. And so forgiveness and reconciliation are possible. We live in this world where sin is minimized. And we read 2 Samuel 21 and we read 2 Samuel 24 and they're brutal. And we think about six guys who we in some level, on some uh, level may say are innocent and they're killed in order to reconcile, in order to break a famine for a nation. You can see the depth or the seriousness of sin by the lengths that have to be undertaken in order to provide atonement. Sin is serious business. 
And it's so serious it requires the death of someone or something to be taken care of, to be dealt with. And sometimes we confuse and we get we get confused or, or maybe we're lulled to sleep because God's wrath, we don't see it being directed. We don't see people every day. We don't see anybody nobody's getting zapped on the street. We don't see necessarily people who we would say are, are wicked. We don't see them necessarily living a life that would say, oh, they're under the wrath of God. He's angry with them. In some places we would see people who are wicked and we say they really seem to be doing pretty good. And the ones who are righteous seem to be struggling the most. That's addressed in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, where Peter says about God's wrath. He says, don't be confused about what you're experiencing Don't let the fact that you don't see God's wrath being poured out right now cause you to think that he doesn't care or that sin is not a big deal to him or that he's not taking note or that he's asleep at the wheel. Recognize it's him being patient with him. A thousand years are like a day and a day is like a thousand years. He's keeping track. And the reason he's patient right now the reason he's not zapping us is immediately after we sin is because he wants to create space for as many as who will to turn to him he doesn't want anyone to perish according to second peter 3 he doesn't want one person to die in their sins apart from him he wants them all to be saved they all won't be saved but god's desire is for all of them to be saved and so he's created this space for us and at this point we're 2000 years post resurrection and who knows how long it goes and in that space what he's saying is here's your opportunity here's your opportunity to say hey i don't want my i don't want you judging me based on what's in my book i don't want you to write my name in yours i want to be judged based on jesus's righteousness and not my unrighteousness that's the space that we have hebrew says today is the day of salvation Today is the day to be saved from the wrath of God, because if we're not, then we experience his righteous anger poured out upon us for our sins. And it will be what we deserve and it will be terrible. Don't take option A. Option B is the way to go. God has made a way for us through the life and the death and the resurrection of his son. His wrath has been satisfied. So why would you choose to experience it? Forgiveness is available, so why wouldn't you accept it? Reconciliation is possible. Why wouldn't you take it? We're going to close with communion, and for many of us, we've taken communion dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and it loses some of its impact, its bread and its juice. I want to remind you, it's bread that represents a body that was broken in a very brutal way. Think of Second Samuel 21. It's blood that was poured out. Think of 2 Samuel 21. It was barbaric. It was gruesome. We don't need to dwell on the details other than for you to recognize and for me to recognize. God didn't God didn't make a sacrifice that costed nothing. His sacrifice cost him everything, which demonstrates to you and to me the depth of desire he has to be reconciled to us. The fact that he offered a sacrifice that cost him the life of his son. Why? For the opportunity 
to be reconciled to you and to me. As you come forward and take communion, I want you to do so with joy. That you serve a God and you love a God and you can have a relationship with a God who's not just holy and just and interested in your obedience, but who is also loving and gracious and merciful and interested in relationship with you. That you can relate to a God, you can boldly come before this God because of the life and the death and the resurrection of His Son, that He's made atonement for your sins. He offers you all of the rewards of a perfect life lived by His Son. And He says, I'll erase all of the judgments from your sinful and imperfect life that you've lived apart from me. Many of you have already made that decision. You're followers of Jesus. I would encourage you as you come forward for communion to do so thinking in your mind. Am I continuing in the same way? Galatians 3, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, are you trying to finish this thing off in your flesh? So easy for us to forget our need for grace. It's so easy for us to forget our ongoing dependence upon the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So easy for us to begin to, yes, I was saved by grace, but I live in my own strength. And I want to encourage you, if you're someone who's been walking with Jesus, just to take a minute and do a little inventory in your heart. Am I continuing in the way of the Spirit or am I attempting in my own flesh to fix things, to make things happen, to grow in righteousness to deal with sin issues in my own life? Or am I recognizing, no, I can't, just like I couldn't save myself the first time, I can't save myself this time either. I need His grace. This represents provision for you. The way we take communion here at Stonebridge, you'll come forward a row at a time and break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. This is gluten-free communion, and it'll be up here for anyone who needs that. Um, we're going to have ministry teams back in these corners, and we'll pray with you at any, about anything you have going on. I would say, one, if you're unsure of your relationship with Jesus, if you're not sure about your salvation, pick option B. Make a choice this morning to say, I don't want you to judge me based on my track record, and I certainly don't want you to judge me based on my motivations. I'm going to come up short. I want you to judge me based on the perfect life of your son. Forgive me of my sins. I'm placing my faith and my trust in Jesus. If you're physically sick, we want to pray for you. If you have a chronic condition, it may be something that's just kind of popped up, and for you it's it's maybe even more annoying than anything else. But one of the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection is he heals our diseases. We want to pray for you, and healing's a mystery. We don't know how it works. We just know prayer is the way that we access that blessing. And so if you are sick and come forward, people will make a, the prayer teams will make a little X on the, or cross on the back of your hand with oil, and they'll pray very simply for God uh, to heal your body. We would love for the opportunity to do that, anything at all that you have going on, but I would say those two big ones. If you're unsure about where you stand with Jesus, please let us pray that that would be settled today. If you're physically sick, please let us pray um, that God would bring healing to your body. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then the... Uh, communion teams and ministry teams, you guys can come on up. Bo, you can come back. Then we'll take communion and we'll close with the song of corporate worship. So y'all can pray with me if you would. God, we're so thankful that you're holy and loving, that you're just and merciful, that you're interested in obedience and relationship. 
And God, we confess. If it was up to us, we're done. We're done. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of your glory. We've all lived pridefully and arrogantly and rebelliously. We've all lived in unbelief. We've been driven by fear. And God, we're so thankful that you have made a way for us to be reconciled. We're we're so thankful for the atoning sacrifice of your son that's represented by this bread and by this juice. And my prayer for the men and women in this room, that every one of them would recognize the depth of desire that you have for them. That you did not offer a sacrifice that cost you nothing. You did not give an offering that didn't cost you anything. The offering and the sacrifice you gave cost you everything. God, I pray that the reality of that would penetrate into the core of who we are. That we would receive communion with great joy and thanksgiving along with some measure of reverence in our own hearts. God, I pray for any in the room this morning whose names have not been written in your book that are riding on their own track record. God, would you bring conviction? Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction of sin? Conviction of a need for a Savior? Conviction of this wonderful invitation that you have extended to them. God, I pray that all the benefits of your death and your resurrection would, um, we would receive all of those. We would receive bodies that are healed. God, that you would clothe us and crown us with love and compassion. That you would deliver us from the pit. That we would walk and not grow weary. That we would run and not faint. That you would, again, Holy Spirit, in these next few moments, apply to us all of the benefits of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.